0: Ned Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Ned Blackhawk. He is a historian at Yale University and a member of the Tomoka tribe of Western Shoshone. His new book titled The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History was published on April 25, 2023 by Yale University Press. I'm joined by 14 of
1: my Harvard classmates. John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Most of my time is spent editing and writing connected with various people who publish stuff.
2: Hi, I'm Joel Huberman. I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I used to be a scientist who worked in a laboratory. Now I am an Activist working locally to bring clean energy to our town, and I gotta just repeat what I said over and over again in the activism event at at the reunion, namely that it feels really good to work very locally where you can actually make real progress.
1: Uh, all in Briscoe um, live just south of San Francisco and San Mateo for 12 years up until about. Uh, a week ago, my daughter was running a diabetes program in a Native American health clinic at uh, in Reno.
3: Ronnie. Um, class of 63, um, echoing Joe. Well, I, I worked in TV and video okay. most of my life, still doing some of that.
1: Uh, Jerry. Good morning. I'm in Pasadena, California, right outside of Los Angeles. I've spent most of my life as an environmental lawyer. Uh, my specialty right now is water. And California has uh, so many crises in water, it's hard to enumerate them. Um, (laughs) Right now, we're having a lot of flooding in the Central Valley because we had a tremendous amount of snowpack, which is melting. And the Tulare Lake, which had disappeared,
4: has reemerged and is flooding local towns at this point.
0: Hmm.
4: Wow. 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 David Lelyveld. I'm uh, David Lelyveld. I'm in New York City in Washington Heights. And uh, I'm a historian of India i taught for quite a few years at the university of minnesota and that's when i first uh, uh, came in contact with native american uh, studies uh there was a department there that just started in 1970 i think and it was a large community uh uh and this uh, uh the uh, of the uh, mo- early uh, years of the movement of the of the 70s. And uh, so I've watched it from afar in New York City, but uh, I, I've always been interested in, in some of the literature and uh, the politics involved. Okay. Doug
0: Shapiro.
3: Uh, hi, uh, Doug Shapiro. Uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, recently, I've uh, been suffering a little bit from the smoke that's been coming over from uh, from Canada. Uh, I retired from the pharmaceutical industry some 10 or 12 years ago and since I've been trying to re-educate my, myself on the new ways of the world.
1: Okay. Uh, Jeff, are you back in Spain? No, I, I'm currently in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, i spent many years as a sociologist uh, I'm now writing uh, fiction, dealing with the same themes, <clears throat> so sociological themes, but uh, through through fiction. Uh, I live in Spain, but I'm here briefly in the United States and at the moment in Santa Fe.
0: Okay, George. George Jones, also in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Enjoyed seeing all of you who were at the reunion. And like Doug, my main challenge right now is not breathing the polluted air. <laughs> right and Morsi,
4: um <clears throat> i run clean air campaign and it's open rivers project in new york city in my youth um i used to go to the cataragas reservation often i grew up in buffalo and now i see some of the western tribes as the only hope as plaintiffs for um, helping to save rivers and wild fisheries. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: Okay. And uh, Peter Grilly.
1: Um, Yes, I was uh, originally class of 63, but didn't graduate until 65. I took a couple of years off to study in Japan, where I had been raised. And I I spent most of my career involved in... Japanese studies or U.S.-Japan cultural relationships um, and also spent a number of years uh, running something called the Japan Project at uh, uh, public television. Mm. Uh, I've also been a filmmaker. Um, I'm not so familiar with Native American history, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. Okay. David McGregor. Hi, David McGregor from Queens. I'm class of 63. Um sorry not to have been able to join everybody at the reunion, but I'm certainly glad to be here today and look forward to hearing from Mr. Blackhawk.
0: Okay, and
5: David Allen.
1: David
5: Allen in Concord, Mass. Um, business academics,
1: but uh, recent decades had a bit of a culmination here at their reunion, especially looking forward to today's discussion. Yes, my uh, education on the topic needs to come forward, and I'm looking forward to it. Okay, Anne.
5: Hi, uh, I'm in. P- I'm not in Peterborough, New Hampshire, right now. I'm in Greenfield, where our summer place is. I'm a retired academic librarian and a climate activist, but right now the uh, there's a guy here who's chipping up wood from all the things that fell during a big storm we had in the winter, and I may just come and go, but um, I'm <laughs> happy. To- Happy to to be here. I just hope I don't miss too much.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Kathy. Um, I'm a retired economist from HUD where I was worried a lot about affordable housing, poverty concentrations, policies (laughs) that might really actually help the poor instead of the upper middle or higher income group. Um, I was delighted to go to the reunion and to join Um, David Allen and others there and um, my priorities right now are uh, trying to help Democrats take both the House and the Senate in in this year's um, uh, Virginia election and uh, as a prelude to Democrats taking everything in next year's (laughs) national election.
5: Really nice to be here (laughs) with uh, so many uh, distinguished and uh, seemingly a uh, very uh, closely connected um, um, graduates or alums of uh, the Harvard class of '63, uh, Yale <laughs> just had their '63 uh, reunion, I think, two weeks ago or something. And um, there are there's one particular uh, one of our earliest Native American graduates is from that class. And he did uh, extraordinary things in his um, career. Uh, His name is Sam Deloria and his brother Vine Deloria is a pretty well-known Native American activist from the 60s and 70s and scholar. Um, So thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm um, a professor of history and something called American Studies at Yale. Um, I've been here for 14 years now, and taught previously for 10 years at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Um, I decided at a young age to become a Native American historian at a time when there were not many uh, teaching in higher education at uh, the kind of leading institutions. So uh, much of the field, as somebody mentioned um, uh, from their time at Minnesota, yeah is rooted in uh, many Western American schools. And so I, I have graduate training in uh, in at the University of Washington and at UCLA before that. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been teaching and writing about Native American history for you know most of my adult life um, <clears> since <throat> since ninety nine And it became really apparent to me at some point that uh, we really could use a kind of single volume, uh, interpretive synthesis of the field, or kind of a um, an overview, and so that's what the, my new book is called, "The Rediscovery of America." I'd encourage everyone to uh, look at it if you have interest in the subject. It is pretty extensive in its uh, range and subjects, um, and I and it's very it's perhaps unlikely that someone would find interest in all of these themes or areas but there's quite a bit on the 20th century that seems to connect with some of the interests of your of your community here so i could talk about how native american history um helps us understand the kind of cold war or post war era um in ways that might be congruent with some of your interests or previous uh, understandings um i might say also something like um <clears throat> there are very few native american studies programs in the elite academic world still uh, but it's become a real big growth field and it's slowly starting to change places like Princeton and Harvard. Um, Dartmouth College has a long-standing program in the field. Um, Cornell University has a nice uh, kind of residential facility for Native American students there Um, and so uh, some of you have ties or interests in that kind of advocacy uh, your your connections with your alma mater might serve these interests somewhat well, uh, but generally speaking, um, it seems like it's time to think about American history a little uh, more capaciously than we've been able to as a, as a nation. Um, and uh-huh. I have a new um, piece I'm trying to get into a newspaper around the Fourth of July that <clears throat> asks us why. Um, and how our declaration has the term merciless Indian savages in it (laughs) and what that really means. And so, um, that's drawn largely from chapter five of my new book, which is on the American revolution or the origins of the revolution. Um, I'm working with Ken Burns on his upcoming revolution PBS show. And I hope that unlike his civil war series or other works, it could perhaps have a slightly more, uh, kind of indigenous subject matter or content to it um and so those are the kind of things i am interested in and and things i do Mm -hmm. i i had a lot of maps made for this book so that people could kind of see more clearly the contemporary reservations within the united states um see some of the kind of global dimensions of some of the conflicts like the seven years war which preceded the american revolution uh things of that nature have been um uh, kind of in front of me for quite a while. There's a question there. Yeah. Uh, what was that phrase about the savages? What was the source of that? Where was that? Where was that language? It's in the something called the Declaration of Independence. Oh, I didn't even see that part. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, would you read? Very, very few people you, ever read it or know much about
1: it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> would you say? Would you extend the quote so and contextualize? Hey, why
5: don't yeah. I put it in the? Um, oh, that'd be great. Thank you uh since i'm it's, worried, one of the,
1: it's one of the things that the king did he has released the terrible savages against us or something like that huh. it's all the king's fault
5: i'll even give you a little uh, i'll give you a little heads up of what I, a little um yeah here it is uh, so the um chapter 5 is about this interior world that forms throughout the 17, late 50s and 1760s. And uh, particularly around uh, the kind of headwaters of the Ohio River, uh, the French Empire attempted to keep British traders from coming into the region. And that sparked the first conflict in this war called the Seven Years War, which is often referred to as the French and Indian War. Right, yeah. And uh, the French fort was called Duquesne. And the English tried to take it in 54 with George Washington. Hmm. They tried again in 1755 to take it with General Braddock, who, who got killed. And those two conflicts are the first opening theaters in the Seven Years' War, which ultimately uh, extinguishes France's claims to North America. This is in the 1750s and 60s. And as the English conquer French forces and fortifications, they begin settling the region as well. And there's this dramatic, you know, and several, a couple of you, I think, are in Michigan um, and know that I'm from Southeastern Michigan. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. There's this dramatic conflict that happens at the the end of this war. And so the the best scholar on the subject, I could go find my copy of the book, um, is a guy named Fred Anderson, who wrote a book called Crucible of War, in which he which he says the war opens essentially with these British attempts to dislodge the French fort at Duquesne. And it closes after the Treaty of Paris in 1763 with a renewed rebellion in the interior by Indian peoples who are unhappy with the British. And they burn down many of the British forts and they basically lay siege to them. And a new war essentially erupts, known as Pontiac's War in the summer of 1763. And that's in many ways, the beginnings of the end of the British Empire in North America because Pontiac's War demonstrates the lack of the English crown's ability to establish authority in the interior portions of North America
1: yeah.
5: and the British the reason that it's the end in, in essence is because the British subjects who are flooding into <clears> the region are going to defy British imperial authority beginning in the aftermath of Pontiac's war so and throughout the fall of 1763 throughout the winter of 1764 and particularly in the early year months of 1765 these backcountry settlers in regions of Western Pennsylvania essentially start marauding and interdicting British supply trains that are being used to bring economic and diplomatic resolution to the Pontiac's war. And these settlers think that there's, there, there should be no, um, essentially peace ever offered to native peoples, that they are the enemies of mankind as they call them, and they have a kind of visceral hatred of Native peoples because the previous war had been so destructive, and the French fought largely alongside Indian allies, who marauded and displaced British settler communities. So that's the ideology that I say, and others obviously have are saying, is forming across the backcountry regions of British North America after the Seven Years' War, during Pontiac's War. And that's where this hatred of Indians really becomes first kind of deeply um, established in ways that create limited possibilities for future coexistence. And so the declaration is in many ways an articulation of grievances that colonists have across the colonies, but that grievance in particular Um, Is coming from these regions. And no one, no historians have satisfactory, have in in my mind uh, satisfactorily answered or demonstrated how the compromise between interior settler communities and Eastern founding father, kind of merchant elite or gentry leaders, how they essentially uh, 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 coalesced their kind of mini grievances together. And no one to my mind, to, except a very small number of specialists, have really exposed how deeply prevalent this kind of anti-Indian ideology was. But somehow it makes it into the Declaration, and that's kind of a, where my current mind or thinking is at.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Peter, I mean, uh, Jeff, did you have a question?
1: No, no, because... It, it, Uh, Professor Blackhark has already answered what I was going to ask, so (laughs) it was just on on that question about the uh, the relationship to the American Revolutionary War.
0: Oh, okay. Michael, you had a question. Yeah, I'm, I'm... Uh, this is fascinating. I, I, I have, I'll i have to get the book and read it, but you deal at all with the impact of disease because one of the myths I've grown up with is the, is the pro- it was disease that caused the uh, major problem rather than, the, or
5: maybe in addition to politics. Yes, you can't write uh, the history of North America. Yeah,
0: yeah,
5: the- Someone's the- got to turn yeah, something off. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. First uh,
5: yeah, Yeah, I write about disease. Um, it's largely in the the opening century of Spanish exploration is the most disease-ridden century of Native American history, uh, but diseases come in waves um, and often predate Euro-American settlement. And so in just about every major colonial area, uh, diseases affected Native American communities and thus kind of uh, preconditioned the regions for European um, colonization.
0: Hey, uh, George.
1: So I, I'd be interested, Professor, in knowing what courses you teach and how your department integrates your interests into the teaching of American history.
5: (laughs) Yeah, um, most academic departments have very few um, uh, kind of core academic requirements. um, And one thing that's happening across the academy is that many humanities fields that historically have been so... Dominant uh, within university life and culture um, have been increasingly losing their enrollments to more science and kind of pre-professional fields, what are known as STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I think. Um, and so departments like here at Eng- at Yale, um, our English department has a kind of set of somewhat uh, onerous um, requirements for its majors. The history department um, has lots of students who take our classes, but less kind of pre requirements for like the introduction to American history and so forth. So none of my classes are required, uh, but they fulfill various uh, what we call field concentrations or emphases within the department. Um, and most of our faculty are encouraged to teach at least one kind of common lecture class and other kind of more mm-hmm. specialized classes. So I do teach a class called the Introduction to American Indian History. Um, I just taught I just taught the book in that class. I'll teach it again next fo- spring, and I'll teach the book again. Um, that's kind of my bread and butter lecture class. If and I teach specialized classes in American Indian Law and Policy, uh, a class called Writing Tribal Histories, where all the students have to write a tribal history of some form. And uh, something called Indians in the Spanish Borderlands, which is a reflection of my earlier work on the Mm -hmm. early American West. So, uh, and Santa Fe, for example, is at the center of much of that narrative. Um, And so I'm very pro, I spent a year living and researching in Santa Fe for that project. Um, So it's been, you know, I actually love, you know, all the kind of facets of Native American history. Um, And my colleagues here kind of have allowed me to develop whatever I'm interested in doing but it's been a hard struggle because American history has become so, and other fields have become so specialized. Um, and in a sense we are learning more and more about less and less and they'll kind of unifying, yeah. unifying, uh, kind of themes of American history, freedom, slavery, liberty, um, economic expansion, um, you know, the growth of the federal government, um, we're, we're we've kind of lost track of some of the kind of unifying themes and have a kind of you know this kind of heterogeneity or this incredible diversity of fields and interests um and so native american history has kind of has has been growing but hasn't been like sufficiently integrated into the kind of common core narrative and so for example harvard was pretty late in this game and uh, recently um, I was in some disagreement with one of their prominent historians named Jill Lepore, who wrote this famous book called uh, These Truths About American History. And I pro- yeah. I published a four to five thousand word critique of that book in the American Historical Review for its lack of attention to Native Americans, because it really doesn't have any sensibility of the subject. Um, and so uh, that's just one example. Eric Foner at Columbia is another very famous American historian who has written extensively about the 19th century without really ever attending to the subject of Indian land loss or ethnic cleansing or the removal process of Jacksonian America or the kind of centrality of the federal government's growth over the West as a kind of central feature of the rise of the federal government. Um, uh, Very few Civil War historians like Foner or someone like Ken Burns earlier, whom I mentioned, um, think a lot about Of the West as a scene of the Civil War. And so one of the kind of revelations to me was that in the spring of 1861, as the federal government is mobilizing its army to bring the South back into the Union, uh, they're also subsidizing federal militias against Indians in places like California. And so one could make the claim, as I do, that these are the first casualties of the Civil War. Are Indian peoples killed by federally funded state militias, federally funded militias in in states like California? Um, No one makes that claim in the history of the Civil War. Um, And there are like probably um, tens of thousands of Indians who are killed during the Civil War, which includes some of the most famous and infamous moments of Indian white relations, like the Sand Creek Massacre, the Bear River Massacre, the forced removal of the Navajo through something called the Long Walk, the largest mass execution in U.S. history at Mankato among, after the Dakota War. These are all chapters of the Civil War that no one generally uh-huh. brings into the narrative except Western historians like myself. So the intention of this book and the intention of the work I do broadly is to try to bring Native American history into uh, into pre-existing paradigms of American history in order to refashion them and to say things like we have more than one like original sin in this country, uh, which is the kind of nomenclature that many off professors use to describe the Constitution's inability to deal with slavery. And Laporte says the same things about the Declaration that you know it's its colossal failure. She says is its inability to stop to stop growing critiques of slavery as an institution. She doesn't say anything about the vilification of Indians in the declaration that in many ways is an insight or is a kind of a legitimization of violence you know, against native mm-hmm. groups. So mm-hmm. we as a country maybe are now reaching a point where we can have a national conversation about these subjects, but it's just taken a very long time. And yeah. so, right. uh, I'm happy David, to keep uh, talking about this.
4: David Lilleville. Yes, I'm sorry my uh, video doesn't work. Uh, I wanna bring up, uh, and I think you have a lot to say about it, uh, the concept of America. Uh, You're really, uh, what you were speaking about is the national history of the United States of America. Your own work is on borderlands. uh, And uh, of course, uh, you were talking earlier about 18th century and what is now Canada and and such. And I'm wondering to what extent you can think of a field of uh, uh, Native Americans uh, in, the, in a larger sense and can, can contrast uh, what the National history of the United States is compared to uh, the uh, histories of uh, different Native American uh, uh, nations uh, that cross borders and uh, how they uh, uh, how they've been treated, in let- specifically in Mexico and uh, and Canada, but uh, more more broadly, I guess the whole field of what might be called Indigenous studies that's a big question (laughs) yeah um but you know it may it may be
5: helpful to know that there is a growing field that thinks of these subjects across national histories Mm -hmm. indigenous studies we now have an academic association which actually was heavily influenced by the uh university of minnesota's faculty in this field um that's why it's really important to build institutional commitments to these subjects is because they can yield uh, the kind of uh, accompanying infrastructure or courses or faculty. Uh, you know, there's um, there's, there's a kind of nice symmetry sometimes between institutional presence and intellectual growth and transformation. So um, the... Indigenous experience, so to speak, um, is something that has helped bring into tr- into um, into being a paradigm known as settler colonialism, which tries to think about the kind of shared history of colonial experiences by indigenous peoples across particularly English Commonwealth uh, communities, or settler societies, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, to a lesser extent, South Africa, Um, And that kind of paradigm has been really quite generative. Um, I take some issue with some of its emphases in the introduction to my book, because I think uh, we have lost sight of how, in fact, central Native American agency has been to the structuring of American Mm -hmm. history and society. Uh, Settler colonialism kind of reinscribes the centrality of the settler as a kind of historical subject Mm -hmm. um, and kind of sometimes has a corresponding diminishment of indigenous you know influence or power or agency that um I think is a little paradoxical. So, um, it's a really great question. Um, it looks like yeah, there's a whole range of questions kind of starting to percolate. I don't know um right. uh, you know how long uh, we may go, but I'm happy to keep talking uh, all right.
0: maybe uh, maybe some of the
5: questions could be asked in um sequence or something, and then we could uh, all right. Doug, yeah.
3: go ahead. Um, yeah, so I have a, a question that uh, may not exactly fit in with uh, the sort of academic uh, kinds of issues that that we are generally uh, in, involved with in, in these kinds of discussions, but uh, I grew up in, in Texas. I consider myself to be a Texan at heart. Uh, one of my favorite uh, authors is a, a kind of Quasi comic novelist named Larry McMurtry. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has written a number of things that are pretty well known, uh, including a, a big novel called *Lonesome Dove*, and so forth. Uh, and uh, some of McMurtry's uh, characters are uh, were Texas Rangers, mm-hmm. and he describes a number of uh, uh, encounters that uh, these uh, Texas Rangers had with uh, certain. Uh, Indians uh, in the Southwest uh, that that were kind of more or less uh, at war with white settlers and so forth, and my question is that I was shocked in reading his some of his novels that he describes some uh, incredibly brutal tortures that uh, some uh, of the Indian uh, warriors uh, would uh, uh, inflict upon. Uh, uh, white people that they captured, and these things have always bothered me because they were they, they were very brutal. And so my question is: I don't know if you're familiar with McMurtry's uh, opus or not, but um, it, it, does his, it, these descriptions of, of these kind of tortures did did that fit in with any of the the kind of uh, southwestern uh, indian tribes uh, is there any reality to that or is this just uh, you know s- something that he dreamed up uh, for his his sort of comic novels
5: um i'm less familiar with mcmurtry but you probably may know that someone like cormac mccarthy has similarly themed uh, portrayals of native peoples in a book like blood meridian um yeah McMurtry. um was a reviewer for a history book by one of my colleagues called *The Comanche Empire*, which uh, won a bunch of prizes about twelve years ago. Um, which is about this period. Um, I'm I'm kind of known as the guy who studies violence. So my first book is called *Violence Over the Land*, and my, this new book has a lot of violence in it too. Um, and so I I'm actually really uh, interested in these themes because they allow us to see this history in a slightly more kind of contextualized way. And so it's hard to abandon some of our, what we might call anthropological sentiments, which have been, you know, you guys are, you know, the people, members of the class of 63 are, you know, kind of, you know, representative of a kind of generation who was taught certain pedagogies in high in in school and kind of, you know, you came of age during the Cold War. You know, there's a kind of triumphalist kind of celebration of America that often had Native Americans as kind of simplistic kind of antagonists. You know, you may have watched like the cowboy movies of the 50s, yeah. um, Lone Ranger and Tano. And so, for example, um, in 1959, seven, I think the year um, you all graduated high school or many of you did uh, seven out of the seven out of the most uh, seven of the ten most popular shows in America on television were westerns, hmm. and we've kind of lost sight of how central that kind of paradigm and genre has been for articulating the story of America. And McMurtry, who I believe is roughly of this of a similar generation, um, is someone who <clears throat> has written extensively about Texas and this kind of regional identity um, whose history seemingly um, has its antecedents or origins in this world of Indians, right? And so the Texas Rangers, um, um, there's a lot of debates right now about what to do with like the 19th century glorification of Texas um, uh, individuals who were, you know, often perpetuating similar types of practices, if not as brutal. What I would say to this, is you can't understand what's happening in the 1830s without or 1820s or 1840s without knowing what happened in the 1720s and 1730s and 1740s and i'm a guy who's spent like you know several years of my life um kind of going through this archive around certain groups and i so i know the comanche history very well um i know the history of northern new mexico um And what I would say is none of these groups had the capacity to uh, uh, conduct violence in the ways that they ultimately uh, uh, became known for. Hmm. They didn't have the mobility. They didn't have the technologies of violence. And perhaps most importantly, they didn't have the motivations. So where did all that come from? And this is the big missing question in America is what happened to America when Europeans arrived? Not what happened to Europeans in America, which is an important story, but what happened to the continent and its original inhabitants. That's the kind of cauldron of transformation and disruption that many scholars, myself included, have been kind of exposing for the last generation or two. And what we see is that, for example, the Spanish, um, you know, these are the opening chapters of the new book, um, the Spanish and then the British and then the French. They're all doing, and the Dutch to a lesser extent, they're all doing certain types of disruptive practices that have extraordinarily far reaching consequences. If it's not just disease introduction, it might be the introduction of economic dependency for trade goods. It may be the introduction of military uh, kind of technologies of violence for um, incentivizing warfare, maybe in the introduction of captive raid trading, you know, of the enslavement of other peoples. And in certain, certain scholars, you know, I, I don't have a lot about the Southeast in this book um, to its default, perhaps. But there are certain scholars who've exposed that more Native Americans were trafficked out of the Americas than African people were brought into the Americas for the first long century of following, following Spanish contact. In a place like the, uh, Charleston actually had more Indians exported from 1670 at the time of its founding to 1715 than they had wow. Africans imported. So this whole century and a half of the first like you know period of the post-columbian world we have to kind of understand in order to understand these subsequent histories. So I know this is kind of a long response, but when I started kind of thinking about how to do this, <clears throat> some of you um at least one of you is in Santa Fe, maybe some of you, some of you have been there. And many of you are from California, Southern California in particular there's this kind of romance and to a lesser extent, perhaps in Texas, there's this romance about Spanish missionization. All fourth grade uh, students in California have to create a mission as part of their kind of social studies curriculum. They kind of construct, used used to be out of sugar cubes, these kind of (laughs) glorified, you know, uh, models of what civilization looked like in colonial uh, California. Um, In Santa Fe, the architectural, requirements of the city are uh, uh, adobe-structured homes and buildings. Um, In Texas, it takes on a different form. But this kind of fascination with this alternative non-Anglophone kind of European heritage has created a mythology around what Spanish colonialism looked like. And so Uh, when I was in Santa Fe, I saw for the first time these long uh, ristras, they're known, or chilies that are kind of woven and Uh, kind of strung together, and then they're dried out, and they're beautiful. And there's this kind of romance around these ristras. And in one of the correspondences or kind of documents I was looking at, I found an example of the Spanish crown rewarding allied Indians for bringing in the ears of their enemies to the capital to show them as proof of their decimation of these other native peoples. Those ears then were subsequently strung together and hung from the governor's palace in Santa Fe, which is the oldest building in Western North America, or at least oldest in oh. So that image you know, <clears throat> stuck with me and it kind of opens the scene of the first, my first book, but I think it helps us kind of r- remind ourselves that subsequent native American actions or violent behaviors were not, Intrinsic to their societies, but products of a transformation unleashed upon North America by European arrival. Wow! Wow,
1: oh. oh, Alden, impressive. Um, a couple of comments and a, and a uh, sort of question. Um, first, um, <clears throat> on all those cowboy shows that we saw in the nineteen fifty nine, all those cowboys were white which I don't think reflects history, but anyway, second comment oh, is that there was some surprise that the Declaration of Independence didn't uh, <clears throat> talk about slavery. Uh, do we know who wrote
5: it? Well, Jefferson, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. He, he does try to put in some, he's very, you know, it's a longer conversation and I'm not like the, yeah. the perfect specialist for this conversation, but he does try to get some kind of wording about limiting um, uh the, 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 the practice into the declaration is yeah. unable to. And then the constitution, it becomes another kind of in, inability, um, uh, an irresolvable conflict. Um, and lapore covers that really well. That's the kind of the, the, the one, so in certain ways, the tragedy of American history is that we've come to know so much about certain features of our national narrative that we don't quite realize that, we have kind of created a hermetic around it that can't like dislodge certain assumptions very very clearly and so Lapore writes beautifully as a boner about some of the most central enduring challenges of american you know political and uh, if not so uh, history more broadly um but they just but i'm trying to say there are other tragedies that are also shaping and informing them um wish me luck <laughs> <laughs> Marcy. <laughs>
4: um <clears throat> have you thought about or written about um what models of tribal organization and practices might be worth trying to emulate in smallish communities oh. today?
5: Um the second half of this book, the first there's 12 chapters, each of which is about 40 or pages or so, 50 type pages um the first half of the book goes to the constitution the second half goes since the constitution and it's in the second half of that book that you could perhaps begin to find some familiarity or kind of overview of what the federal government's relationship with tribal communities looks like it's not usually a pretty picture but it does include the moments of engagement and recognition that are surprising and often uh, unanticipated. The federal government's relationship with tribal communities, rooted not in the Declaration but in the Constitution, um, shows how certain founding principles of bilateral recognition between the federal government and Native Americans evolves over time to create a totally distinctive form of US. constitutional. Doctrine and practice called federal Indian law. And it sits partly because we don't quite understand it, it sits often in conflict with other constitutional principles and um, practices, particularly those over individual rights. And so I'm involved with some legal advocacy groups and initiatives to try to kind of remind often court officials or at least their clerks that there is a history behind these distinctions that should be further understood and recognized and that is that the native americans have less have been much less interested in citizenship within the united states than they have been in autonomy for their communities and so that autonomous kind of authority which we might call american indian sovereignty has enabled tribes recently because of their Efforts because of their advocacy, because of their activism, <clears throat> that uh, that sovereign authority has expanded dramatically since the Nixon uh, era into this kind of incredibly, almost flourishing world of Na- Native American economic and political development. Tribes still remain the poorest communities in the United States, but many, particularly because of their gaming initiatives, have become multi-billion dollar entities who have been building museums and doing environmental restoration, all kinds of practices. And so there's a great book called Unlikely Alliances about how tribal communities and rural communities have come to see that tribal sovereignty, in fact, benefits rural communities as well and through employment and through uh, environmental protections and forms of anti-corporate extractive practices. Um, So Native American uh, sovereignty is in many ways, one of the kind of um, clearest models for localized self-governing practices that are able to withstand sometimes heavy duty, corporate or um, multinational um, influences. This isn't always hasn't always been the case of course cuz tribes got clear-cutted, their oils got stolen, their uh, uranium and coal were taken um and there've been massive lawsuits about the federal government's complicity in these practices. Um their grazing lands were used by non-Indians. So um it's not a, ha- a happy history essentially, but it's one that this uh field kind of helps uh, kind of illuminate and perhaps because of your interest in rivers and waterways is worth kind of um uh, delving into
2: Mm -hmm. joel yeah you you well first of all i want to thank you for this really really interesting uh description of your work and your book i'm going to purchase it and read it i'm also going to find that book that you just mentioned unlikely alliances i wonder if you'd be willing to depart from history and speculate a little bit about the future, the, the near future, I guess, because it's hard to talk about the distant future, but the near future of um, the indigenous situation in America, the relationship between indigenous peoples and all those others, Um Uh, what you just said about the unlikely alliances sounds a bit hopeful. Is there reason to be a bit hopeful for the future?
5: Well, I've kind of heard uh, certain kind of political phrases over the years that seem to kind of resonate on these terms. I think, you know, uh, we should try to keep hope alive, you know, and, uh, you know, and know that you know, if we, uh, if we foreclose the kind of capacity to uh, see optimism within dark situations. We're only strengthening uh, the challenges in front of us, perhaps. So it's hard to be optimistic in the field of like Native American history. Um, but we are at this kind of historic moment. And so the book kind of ends, as I was mentioning, with the kind of rise of kind of Indian sovereignty in the kind of post-Nixon era um, there's lots of strategies that Native Americans have initiated in the last seventy five years or so to try to combat these real challenges. Um, but they're obviously really important challenges that remain. Um, and so I am kind of hopeful because we're starting to have a conversation about these things, but I'm a little pessimistic because people have come to this point so late in their kind of formations that they can't quite understand. Or engage these principles or ideas, and this is most commonly associated with the Supreme Court, where uh, American achievements of the of the of the what's called the self determination era have kind of fallen on deaf ears uh, since really the um, the 80s. And so, uh, the Rehnquist Court and the Roberts Court have not been um, as kind of attentive to this field as the Warren Court uh, beforehand. So um, those are the challenges. And when um, Indian law isn't taught, um, you know, at Harvard or Yale or, you know, or it's only taught by, you know, adjunct people and not by full-time faculty, uh, the, you know, the graduates of these schools, you know, uh, Kavanaugh and Thomas, you know, they have no uh, familiarity. Um, Sotomayor, so who's also a Yale grad. Um, actually, had a Native American classmate I met, and so that classmate kept saying, "You know, we were able to convince her that this is an actual field that requires." Um, and they have these things called small groups at Yale, so it's a small group of people who all went through the, the same experience together. So that's why I believe, and I'm hopeful that by reforming and changing certain institutional spaces, there are kind of possibilities for um, for uh, you know uh, potential realignment.
4: Uh, my question is this, what do you think is the role in terms of restructuring and creating a new uh, uh, beautiful relationship that was uh, should be the uh, destiny of American culture? Uh, what do you think should be the role of uh, the reparations movement uh, and what is the, uh, and when you look at it and the cost, when you look at just the cost of the land here, it pales all of the reparations. <laughs> what is the cost of all yeah. this land? And so, you know, I mean, you know, there is yes, this, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, you, you go. So yeah, we're, we're, what role there, should we be playing as Native Americans? People American? may not realize I'm, this. I'm, I'm part of Native American. Yeah. go ahead.
5: They, there have been reparations movements throughout the 20th century for restitution of Native American... Yeah lands lost lives lost resources have uh, taken uh, there's and so in the last 10 15 years two nearly half billion dollar settlements that the federal government has initiated with tribal communities have been you know adjudicated through uh, congress one's called the cobell settlement of for the use of indian lands uh, unconstitutionally or illegally Uh, for non-Indian grazers. The other is the Navajo Nation has received a nearly half billion dollar settlement. The lawyers get like 30 or 40% of all this. So, you know, it's not just like the tribe, but um, there's been large settlements for native groups. There's something in the post-war era called the Indian Claims Commission. Uh, So there are, there have been legal remedies uh, for restitution, um, if not reparations for native communities. Um, So I think any effort to do a kind of historic um, justice or the, uh, social justice around historic issues has to kind of have a kind of strong engagement with existing and current claims and strategies. Um, and I'm really happy to, uh, to hear that um, you've kind of been um, a part of this effort for uh, for uh, such a long time uh, because uh, we have a hard time just kind of understanding the diversity of Native America as well. I think one of the comments in the chat said something along these lines. And one of the hardest things about teaching in the Northeast has been kind of coming to know the distinctive histories of the indigenous peoples of this region. Um, And we have just been so mis- Like poorly established to understand that within the 13 original colonies, they didn't have the same sets of treaty relationships or reservation establishments. And so the history of federal Indian policy that we call it generally didn't extend within the original states of the union. So uh, we have this kind of vision of federal Indian affairs that is so rooted around the West and reservations and federal recognition that we have a kind of limited capacity to understand the distinctive like histories of of uh, particularly non federally recognized tribes in the in this in the in the region, so um the Wampanoag, as you know, have been very um effective in certain ways but have you know been challenged in others and some of those challenges remain around convincing outsiders particularly uh, politicians or judges, that yeah. these communities still retain distinctive cultural and self governing practices and so um yeah, this is sadly. Um, this sadly is the this sadly is the last question I can take at the moment because I have uh some childcare responsibilities that I have to attend to at twelve thirty. Okay, <laughs> okay. Really enjoyed our time together. Maybe you guys can keep uh, talking after my with my after my absence.
0: We'll, we'll invite you back too. We'll have to invite here you not, here. Here, uh, no. No. yes, yes. Yeah, uh, All right. Phenomenal, right. yeah, Ned.
1: Thank, you, but, thank, you. You. thank
0: right. you. Thank you, Ned. Well, that was Ned Blackhawk. His new book is titled The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast also streams on wioxradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.